Well, it is very good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's a joy to visit Norway and to see our family again, and a real privilege to share God's Word. I bring you greetings from our church in Lindstrom, Minnesota. Uh, they uh, pray for you often, and people at church are often asking how it is going here and how Matt and Deborah and the children are as well. So uh, please, uh, you know, be encouraged to know that there are other people in Minnesota that are praying for you as well and the work God is doing here. This morning I'm going to be talking about the choices that we make and how they affect not only ourselves and our life, but how they affect um, the people around us and those who will follow us as well. And that's why I chose this passage from um, 1 Kings to look at the life of Solomon and then his son Rehoboam and to talk about that this morning. Um, Many years ago, a young woman in the United States, her name is Sarah Groves, she wrote a song that was called Generations. And she's a Christian artist and she was meditating on the passages in Deuteronomy that talk about blessings and curses. And she was thinking about that and how that affects our families. And in this song, Generations, she wrote this. She said, remind me of this with every decision. Generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. There's a lot of truth in that statement that I can make a difference in the lives of those who follow me. I will make a difference in the lives of those who follow me by the choices that I make. When we look at Solomon's life, and I know that recently um, in your study, Matt was preaching on the book of Kings. And you think about Solomon. He was the wisest of all men. God had given him this great knowledge in all areas and people like the Queen of Sheba came to listen to him and was amazed. Uh, She would say not even half of it had been told me of his knowledge in so many different areas. He wrote some 3,000 proverbs. He wrote songs or psalms. He uh, spoke on different areas of knowledge. And yet here this wisest of men made some really foolish choices as he got older in his life. And he intermarried with these foreign wives, took them as his wives, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. Solomon did not finish well. As the scripture said that was read for us, as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as that of David. And Solomon began to worship these other gods, and they were detestable. Um, But when you look at Solomon's life, what we see then is that his choice was not just a personal, private matter. You know, it wasn't something that was just going to affect him. But his choice affected the nation and it affected the people who would follow him. And not only did Solomon begin to worship foreign gods, but Solomon also ruled his people 
unwisely by overtaxing them and forcing them into hard labor to pay for his projects. So when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam becomes king, and the people come to him asking for relief. They, they want some measure of relief, and it is clear that if he had done that, they would have followed him. But Rehoboam listens to the counsel of the elders and then rejects that, and instead chooses to listen to the counsel of the young men who you know, encourage him to make that statement that my little finger is bigger than my father's waist, you know, as though I'm tougher than he was. And if you thought he made it hard, I'm going to make it really hard for you. And now there is a rival in this story. And his name is Jeroboam. He was one of Solomon's officials. And because of Solomon's sin in turning away from the Lord, God had sent a prophet to Jeroboam who told him that he would be king over the northern ten tribes. But he told them that he must wait until God's time for him to become king. Well, Jeroboam was not a patient man, and he didn't wait. He tried to seize the kingdom while Solomon was still alive, and when Solomon learned of this, he tried to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam fled to Egypt. And now that Solomon has died, Jeroboam comes back from Egypt, and he brings the people to Rehoboam in the passage we read in 1 Kings 12 where Rehoboam had gone to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam's son of Nebat heard, heard about this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. That was their request. And that is what Rehoboam rejected. So the people rebelled, and the kingdom was divided. Jeroboam would become king of the northern ten tribes of Israel, and he would establish his capital in Shechem, in Samaria, and he would set up golden calves, idols once again, in Bethel and Dan. And Rehoboam would become king over Judah in the southern kingdom. And we look at this and we go, why did this happen? Why did these turn of events come about? Was it just a bad decision by Rehoboam, who should have listened to the elders? Or was God also in this and doing something according to his purposes? You see, in Scripture, when we read these things, and we think about even our own lives, there is a lower story that is really the world in which we live and the events that we see. And there is the upper story where God reigns, and he is sovereign over the events in our world. And it is his will that prevails. But when we look at the lower story and we see things that you know, seem out of control or seem so difficult or seem like this isn't the way it should be. 
we become anxious, fearful. We worry about what is going to happen next. Well, where is our trust? God is calling us to put our trust in Him, that His plans will prevail. And we're going to talk about that. What was the real reason for the division of the kingdom? Because God was making it clear to all Israel that idolatry will not be tolerated. Idolatry will not be tolerated. In 1 Kings 11, verses 9 to 12, it said that the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. I mean, think about that. The Lord, God in his mercy, had appeared to Solomon on two occasions, and he made it very clear that this was the Lord who was speaking to him, These were the promises that he was giving to him. And if he would listen, Solomon would never lack a descendant to reign on the throne. Well, Solomon disobeyed. And although God had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. God was doing this. God was disciplining Solomon, but he was also at work in the nation as well. You see, Rehoboam did make a poor decision, but the real reason was that Solomon's heart had turned away from God, and he did not repent of his sin. Solomon forgot rule number one, the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. And he forgot the second commandment, that you shall not make an idol. And here he had set up all of these different foreign gods and set up all of these idols and began to worship him. Kind of in a, I'm going to cover my bases and see if I can pray to each of these gods to keep me safe or keep me well. Solomon also ignored the instructions that were given in the Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy. Where in Deuteronomy 17, there were these instructions given for kings. Deuteronomy 17, I'll read from verses 14 and following. God said, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, uh, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire for himself great numbers of horses or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. 
taken from the priests who are Levites, and it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So God had made it clear For the kings, what they were not to do and what they were to do. They were not to acquire great numbers of horses and chariots. You know, they're not to put their trust in the size of their army. Their trust is to be in God. He's not to acquire many wives. And yet kings often did that as a way to build alliances with other kingdoms, thinking that, you know, if I'm married to this king's daughter, he's not going to attack me. But we're not to put our trust in our human wisdom and alliances. And thirdly, we're not to acquire uh, large amounts of silver, he was told. Not to put his confidence in his wealth or in his bank account. But the one thing he was to do was to keep a copy of God's word with him. And to read it every day. That he might live according to the word of God. And we think about that with with Jesus, who even when he was tempted by the devil, said to him that man does not live on bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do this and live. Have we forgotten rule number one? I think about that as a nation, but I also think about it as an individual. When we look at nations that have turned away from God and his word and have put their confidence in the strength of their army or the size of their economy or their wealth, I think that God allows things to happen in our world that shake our confidence. Where economies, you know, falter or stumble and and there are concerns about that or where there are wars and we see how awful that is and what is going on. I think that there are times when God allows these things to happen to get our attention and to bring us to our knees to pray once again and to turn to him. Sometimes as individuals, we have made idols of things. And people can make idols out of many things. They can make an idol out of out of money. They can make an idol out of sex. They can make an idol out of uh, power. Uh, all kinds of things that we can put our confidence or trust in. But think for a moment about money and how greed can get in the way of a person's relationship with God. Rather than trusting in him, they, they are trusting in those provisions that God has given for us. Money can be a tool that is used to serve God. It is the means he uses to provide for us our daily bread. But money can also be an idol if we turn away from the Lord and we think that, you know, I have to earn this amount of money or I have to do this or I have to work here. And people sometimes put in long hours to do that. Tim Keller, who was a pastor for many years in New York City, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And he said, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess just about every sin you could think of. Almost. 
There's one that he said, I can't recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. And I think that my, my greed and my lust for money is hurting my family, my soul, and the people around me. How do we fight against that? Well, generosity is an antidote to greed. When we give back to the Lord and we acknowledge what he has given to us and we give back that tithe or those offerings to him, it's a recognition that everything that I have has come from God. And when we use it to be a blessing to others, we begin to realize and remember that God has given us the means so that we can help someone else and be kind and good to them as well. Giving is good for the soul. In 1 Timothy, for example, the scripture instructs those who are rich in this world not to put their trust in riches, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. That is from 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. But another thing we see in this passage of scripture in this story of of Solomon and his son Rehoboam is that God's plan will not be thwarted. His purposes will prevail. His plan is not going to be thwarted. From a lower story perspective, the division of the kingdom looks like a bad thing. And it is. But it doesn't put God's plan at risk. God is still on his throne in heaven. You know, the Messiah is still going to come. He's still going to be born. God is going to work out his purposes according to his will. The northern kingdom would have 19 kings. All of them would be bad. When we read through First and Second Kings, we get these summary statements on their life. And it will say things like this, that their heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Or they did more evil than the nations God had driven out of the promised land. They were worse than the Canaanites as they descended and followed their sin. Yet none of that would prevent God's Son from coming to earth or the fulfillment of the promises that he made to David. In the southern kingdom, we will have 20 kings with a mixed review. Only six would have positive comments made about them. But in their life, God would use Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah to further his purposes in bringing the Messiah, our Savior. We see that also in the New Testament, an example of how God's purposes will prevail. When Jesus said to Peter, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. God is going to build his church. And even when we are in this world and we look and sometimes we feel like the church is faltering, or there are so few, or God, what are you doing as we are trying to grow a new church or plant new churches? And God says, it's okay. I've got this. That he is at work and he will call out his people, those whom he has chosen, to come into a relationship with his son. 
In the lower story, it may look bleak at times, like the church is losing ground or the secular culture is winning. But God will do it. Nations may come and go. They may pass from history even. But God's word remains and his church remains. His kingdom will never end. The question is, will we be part of it? Jesus is going to build his church and he can do it with or without us. But wouldn't you rather be a part of what God is doing and join him in his work? Wouldn't you rather be a part of what God is doing in our world to see others come to the knowledge of his son Jesus as Savior and Lord? Wouldn't you rather share in the joy of seeing God answer prayer or raise up new leaders, new disciples, new pastors, those who will go out to proclaim his word? One of my great joys in ministry in our church was to be involved with our missions and what we were um, doing both as we sent out people from our church who would go to different parts of the world as missionaries, but also uh, for 19 years I had the opportunity to travel to another country to teach God's Word. And most of that was done in South America and Central America. And we developed relationships with uh, other churches. One was in Guatemala, uh, among a people that were um, quite poor, and they were living in the mountains of Guatemala. Even in their own country, they were kind of marginalized. But we had developed a relationship, and the pastor, his name was Pastor Obispo. And I and some others went down, and we taught, and we uh, shared from God's Word, and we helped to train pastors in that area, and we would support that church. And uh, when, when I wasn't there, we had set up to have a monthly phone call where we would talk for about an hour, and I would ask how it's going, how he's doing. It was to encourage him, and, and then to share prayer requests, how we could be praying for them. And I remember one time when Pastor Obispo, talking on the phone, I could tell he had tears in his eyes as he expressed how grateful he was for our support. Even though separated by many miles, he said, we have you in our heart. And I knew that that church and those believers were praying for us as well, or maybe even more than we were praying for them and the work that was going on there. And every time, you know, they saw people come to know Christ or be baptized or growing in their faith, we shared in that joy. That's, that's how the church works. When we pray, when we give, when we serve, we are joining in the work and we share in the blessings that come from God. And we celebrate what he is doing. I enjoyed hearing you this morning, Peter, pray for the other churches in Hamar and, and here uh, in, near Stavanger as well. And it's just a joy to think of what God is doing as God's word is going out. And may that multiply many, many times over. I also love uh, this verse from the book of Job when I think about God's purposes. In Job 42 to Job said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. No plan of his 
can ever be denied. Well, thirdly, when I look at this passage, we see how our decisions and our behavior will affect generations to come. My decisions, my behavior, again, is not just a personal matter that affects me. It's not just my own business, you know. It affects others. And a verse that really speaks strongly to that is found in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, verses 1 to 7, God said this, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children, and then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands." They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God and whose spirits were not faithful to him. You know, in that psalm, there are five generations that are mentioned in that passage. You know, we're going to take, we'll remember what our fathers told us and we will tell that to our children that they might tell the children who aren't even born yet about the works of God, and that they in turn would tell their children. And how that message, that's how the gospel, that's how the word of God is to be passed on in those relationships. From a parent to a child, from grandparents to their grandchildren, and to even pray for your great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren that they might know the Lord and follow him. We need God's word. We need to be reminded of it daily. We need to hear this over and over again because our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds forget. Or we let other things in our life, you know, so distract us or get in the way that we forget. God is good. God's got this. He is sovereign. We can trust him. Sarah Groves was right in her song that what we do, what we believe, what we teach our children will affect generations to come. The decision made by the kings of Israel and Judah would affect their entire nation and the lives of every person in their kingdom. And our decisions also have ripple effects. They affect our family and the generations to come. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, This past week, um, we went to visit some of my relatives, our relatives, up in Stanghelle, Stanghelle, Norga. That's where my grandfather came from. And um, my grandfather's name was Ole John Stanghelle, or Ula Jan. And he uh, grew up on a farm there in Stanghelle. But it was a very small farm. 
In fact, sometime earlier, and I don't know exactly when, there was only one farm in Stonghella, this small community, and that man had three sons, and so when he died, the farm was divided up into three smaller farms. And you can't keep doing that with farms and expect to make a living. I mean, you can't just keep dividing the land over and over again. So, Ole was born in 1872, and he came to America, the United States, in 1892 at the age of 20. He took a risk. He took a step of faith, believing that for him and for his children and grandchildren after him, that there would be opportunities in the United States that could provide a better life or a better income. And so he took that step of faith as a single man. He left his family. He left everything that he loved in Norway. And he went to the United States. He would travel to Minnesota. Um, He uh, first was in the Minneapolis area, a larger city, where he connected with a church. And at that church, he was in a Bible study, but also was learning to speak English. And And because he learned English and he learned enough of it, then he got a job with the railroad that was being built in northern Minnesota, and they made him a section foreman because he could communicate with the other immigrants who only spoke Norwegian. And so he was given this job, and he he worked there, worked hard, and earned money so he could buy some land. He bought 160 acres of land through the railroad company, and then started to farm. He would meet my grandmother, who was actually from Varmland in Sweden, and had come over as well, and was working as a housemaid. And they would have a family. They would have eight children. And they would um, move from that piece of property to another piece of land where they would uh, live and set up their home place, and that's where my dad grew up and worked. But... Ula was also a man of faith. And the picture that I have in my mind of him was where he was sitting in a chair in his room and he had his Bible open on his lap. He loved God's Word and he loved to read that. That's a Bible that was passed down to my dad and passed down to me and I have that and treasure that. And Ula loved to give. He had come to know Christ. He was a man who loved to give to support uh, missionary works and to support his local church. Um, He would die at the age of 90. I was just seven years old when he died. But I can remember going into his room to see him and he would kind of put his hand on my head like a blessing. And he would call me Rickard in his uh, accent that he had. And, you know, he took, he took great joy in seeing his children and his grandchildren. He prayed, he had hoped that one of his sons would be a minister. And yet, that didn't happen, but one of his grandsons did become a minister. And now a great-grandson to him who is a minister. You see... Ula and Emma, in their faith, prayed for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. 
to know the Lord and to continue on this legacy of faith. What will we pass on to the children and to the people around us? You know, I feel like those values that he had about faith, a love for God and his word, about family, about hard work, saving or being frugal, about generosity, giving to the Lord's work, those things feel like they're just part of of who we are. That's the way I grew up. It's part of our life and the values that we share. And maybe you didn't have that example set for you. Maybe you are the first in a line who has come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You could start that line today. You could start and pass on that same kind of legacy through your prayers, through the instruction that you give to your children and grandchildren, and through the relationships that you have with the friends, the people you know at work, or the people who live around you. You could be a blessing to them and make a difference in their life too. Let's pray. Father, I think of those words that Sarah wrote. Remind me of this with every decision. Generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. Lord, may we be a people who are faithful to you, who delight in your word, who listen to your instruction, and who pray for those who will follow behind us, that we might point them to Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and that we might pass on a legacy of faith for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.